Let us turn now to our Old Covenant reading in Psalm 33. This is God's word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make harmony to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And then let us turn over to our new covenant reading, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verses 25 through 30. This is my preaching text for tonight. Matthew chapter 11. Beginning at verse 25, we continue to read the word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. In our text, our Lord Jesus Christ brings together two important and oft-repeated themes in God's Word. First, God's absolute control of all things and all events, and in particular in this text, that aspect of God's absolute control that has to do with eternal salvation. Eternal salvation, God is in control of those of Adam's fallen race, who receive eternal salvation in his grace, by his grace. And the second most important truth is each person's moral responsibility and accountability before God. And from our finite point of view, these truths can at times appear contradictory, especially if we view them only on the surface. But I'm convinced we will find when we are finally known as we are known, when we stand in the presence of our Savior, I believe we're going, to be look, we're going to be able to look back and we're going to see how these two glorious truths fit together beautifully, perfectly. 
how, how they, they belong together. Now, we want to remember that God is infinite, and we are finite. When we come and we try to, right now, we're trying to understand this idea of God being in absolute control and God being sovereign and who is saved, those whom the Father and the Son choose to reveal himself to. And yet Jesus also uh, calling upon us to come to him and find rest in him. And he even gives us reasons to motivate us to make that decision. It is a decision we make. It is a determination we make to come to him. And we have a hard time putting those things together. But God is infinite. We are finite. God is absolute holiness. And uh, one of the uses of the word light, metaphorically in Scripture, is for understanding. You know, God is light. He is the one who is omniscient. And he is the one with absolute and perfect wisdom and knowledge. And we are conceived and born and live our lives in sin. And one of the uses of darkness as a metaphor is for sin and, and especially the blindness that sin brings to our minds. So my point is this, you know, not only is God infinite and we're finite, but then to complicate the thing, God is infinitely holy, and here we are, we're not even as Adam was in his first creation. We, in Adam, have fallen into sinful darkness of mind. And is it any wonder that we struggle then trying to understand how to put these things together? One thing I'd like to warn you about is when, whenever, I, I believe, whenever the church tries to think it can, it can work these things together um, and, uh, and take all, you might say, mystery or that part that's not comprehensible to us right now, take all that part out and make it totally understandable, you lose one or the other of the main points. Either you become a fatalist. And I think if you, if you just go with, you know, God is in absolute control and there's no sense of individual responsibility, I think it does look very much like Islamic fatalism. And on the other hand, if you try to overemphasize human responsibility to, uh, you know, downplaying God's sovereignty, you end up uh, with a smaller God than the God of the Bible. And so it's important we, we hold on to both. You know, we do that with the doctrine of the Trinity, don't we? You know, one divine essence, three eternal persons, and I'll tell you right now, I don't know how it works. And I don't believe you know how it works. I believe we'd have to be God to know exactly how it works. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw this out because this actually happened to me. Um, I'm allergic to uh, codeine. By that I mean I get high on codeine. It doesn't help my pain. So usually, you know, my dentist one time uh, prescribed codeine, and um, I was kind of delirious in the night, and I, I had kind of a, an illusion I'd figured out the Trinity. It shows I was, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> It wasn't quite an LSD trip. I don't know what that would really be like, but it must have been pretty close if I thought I could figure out the Trinity. And I woke up the next morning just had to laugh when, when my mind was back normal again. And I, that, after that, I told my doctor, no more codeine for me, that's it. But uh, the same thing's true of the, the person of our Lord, isn't it? The incarnate person of our Lord. Truly God, truly man, not a split personality, not some kind of mix, you know, half God, half man. Truly God, truly man, one person, the most integrated person that's ever lived. And we have no, I, I don't know how that works. I really don't. And I think this doctrine falls into that, God's absolute sovereignty and how he has made creatures in his image that have true moral responsibility. And yet he has never lost any uh, control. He's never lost any no, there's never a second in, in any inch of his creation when he was not the one really in charge and ultimately in charge. Now, what's the context for this interesting paragraph here? Our Lord has just been rejected by uh, those in some of the very villages and towns where he taught and did his miracles. He has just said that Sodom and Gomorrah will have an easier time at the last judgment than those who have heard of him and had seen the gospel at work in him, 
he is, in a sense, the good news himself, and they still rejected it. And this is a warning to us. Because we've, some of us have had the gospel preached to us our whole life. I've already intimated in the call to worship that I grew up in the church, and I would sit down and look up there, and there was you know, Psalm 34, verse 3, looking at me, calling me to worship the true and living God. That's true of some of the rest of you. Others of you maybe got converted as adults. But we have the gospel, and it's a dangerous thing to have the gospel and not believe and embrace the gospel. And uh, we see that with these people here. I, it shows the darkness of the human heart, doesn't it? I mean, there are people, uh, This is, I, ha, I came across people when I was uh, in broad evangelical circles as I was becoming Reformed, who... Um, believe that, uh, you know, things like miracles and signs, surely they would convince someone to believe. But actually, as you read through the gospel accounts, in the gospel of John at one point, a bunch of people believed because Jesus did miracles, and Jesus did not trust that faith. Uh, In the original, it's very interesting. It basically says, Jesus did not believe their belief in him, if you look at the original language there, because it was based on signs and wonders. And just think of the people who saw signs and wonders and still walked. Think of the scribes and Pharisees who walked away and uh, even were enemies of Jesus. And here is evidence. You see, it's in the end of the day, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. We're sinners. We, We don't want the gospel to be true until God does a work of grace in our hearts. And we really began to see who God is and began to recognize our sin for what it is. And he creates within us a desire to come to him and to believe the good news and actually see it as good news. But this is a warning to us that, especially for those of us who grew up in the church as children, uh, we can hear the gospel without really embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We need to trust in him as our Lord and Savior. Now, uh, one of the problems that we have when we talk about human responsibility, I think, has been the, the use of the word free will. And I'm, not, I'm actually not against the term free will. Um, I, I do think we have to think about what it means. Uh, to some of my Arminian friends, free will means I can choose to believe or not to believe, to follow Christ or not to follow Christ. And that's totally within my power to do that. Uh, free will, I think, biblically, is the fact that God doesn't program us like robots. And when we turn to his son, Jesus Christ, he has persuaded us and turned us, and we really do decide for him uh, using our minds and uh, making a decision of the will. Uh, but we have a sinful will. You know, we're, we're, we're free to choose We're free to choose according to what we are, according to our nature. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because we won't see the truth because we don't want to see it. And we won't choose the truth because we want to choose something else as far as truth and righteousness until the Holy Spirit regenerates us with the word of the gospel. And that is, comes and begins to change our thinking and to change Uh, give us an ability to choose God, his son, his word. Faith is, is in one sense, choosing him, choosing to come to him and to turn uh, from what I used to, uh, how I used to think, and what I used to believe, and how I used to practice, uh, you know, what I believe. So let's think about sovereign grace first. And we see in verses 25 through 27, first, the Father's hiding and revealing of saving truth. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Father hiding, or on the other hand, revealing his saving truth. As Jesus responds to this rejection of himself by those who knew better, they had seen his miracles, they had heard him speak. 
As he responds to their rejection, he gives thanks to the Father. Instead of being dejected, because here he has come, and you know he's come as the Redeemer, and he preaches, and he does miracles, and here are all these people rejecting him. Instead of becoming downcast, he gives thanks to the Father. God is in control. The Father has hidden these things. Now, what are the, these, these things? Well, in the context, it's a saving knowledge of the gospel, is how we would word it, bringing, in, bringing to bear on this text the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the gospel account. It's, it's a saving knowledge of God in the Messiah, the saving knowledge of the gospel. And the Father hides this from certain ones. That, that may be hard for us to understand, but we don't want to water down Jesus' clear statement here. Let us learn to fear God instead. That's what I think, trusting the Bible at these hard points, I think it's a matter of whether we have the fear of the Lord or not. You know, is, is he the boss or am I the boss? Is he the teacher or am I the teacher? And uh, we are to trust his holy word. Our sinful hearts are dark. And it would be true to say for God just not to reveal is to hide. Whereas our sinful hearts are so dark that if he just chose not to bring us the truth, then we are going to be in sinful darkness because that's where we begin. But I think the language here seems stronger than a mere passing over. The truth was right before their eyes. And they could not see because they would not see. And we might could say they would not see because they could not see. I'm not sure. I think we want to be careful about thinking we can figure out which way that goes. We're born in darkness. We don't want to see. We can't see. We choose not to see the, the truth of the gospel. From whom is the gospel hidden? The wise and the prudent. He doesn't hide his truth from everyone. Just the wise and the prudent. Or I, I, I'm using a different translation there, in the ESV, the wise and understanding people. Those who believe, they know the answers. See, this is part of unbelief. Those who believe, they know the answers. They're still caught up in their foolish, sinful pride. They're still trusting in their own understanding. They are those who believe they can solve their own problems. They do not see and feel their sinful weakness, their sinful inability to make themselves right with God. One of the things that as I, you know, toward the end of my ministry, it was, it was growing on me, probably the last 10 years, I probably mentioned this too often in the pulpit, you, you do repeat yourself sometimes as a minister. But it was, it was just hitting me how, you know, of course I'd always preach that we could not put ourselves right with God, but it was hitting me more and more you might say emotionally, how we're the problem, how could we be the solution to our problem? In other words, when you really see what the problem is, there can, there's no place for legalism. There's no place for self-righteousness. I'm my problem. And if I'm the problem, I can't be the solution. It has to come from outside of me. And uh, here we find the wise and prudent. Those who think They've got it figured out. Those who think they can figure out what their problem is and set themselves right, the truth is hidden from them. But look at this glorious contrast here, because there's this other group of mankind mentioned. Those to whom God does reveal the gospel in a way of salvation. Those who are brought to see and know the truth of Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son. And who are they? Well, in the uh, New King James that I originally preached from, they're, they're babes. And he does use the word that is uh, babies or maybe little toddlers. And here in our text, um, little children. We know that fits with other things Jesus said, doesn't it? Who, who enters the kingdom of God? Those who become like little children. Remember Jesus saying that? That is, those who have humbled themselves become like little children before God. They have been humbled by the conviction of their sins. 
and humbled by the persuasion of the truth of the gospel of grace. And this is a work of God's sovereign spirit in the sinner's heart. They know God through Jesus Christ, for God the Father, by his spirit and his word, has revealed Jesus Christ to them. You know, you have to appreciate how sinful you are to some measure. You know, obviously, we grow in understanding how really sinful we are as Christians. But you have to come to an appreciation of your sinfulness, and you have to come to an appreciation of the fact then that, that there is a God willing to save you by grace. It's always been, it's kind of fascinating to think that, you know, in a sense, from our, our viewpoint as Christians, it's easier to understand why the non-Christian world is insulted when we say they're sinners. We, we know you don't like hearing, you know, uh, criticism. So we say you're sinners. But they're just as insulted or more so by the gospel of grace. I remember hearing a sermon uh, recorded of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on this. Some of you have read some of his, his works. And um, he's just kind of marveling. He said, uh, and he was preaching at one of his evangelistic services. So there were people from London had come to hear him preach. and Some of them were kind of religious, but not, not really the true gospel. And he said, what is it that some of you find so insulting about this story? That God was so full of love, he sent his son to come and die for sinners who would trust in him. Some of you are greatly insulted by that. And if nothing else, it shows how how we're caught up in our sinful pride and self-sufficiency, that we would find that insulting, but the non-Christian does. Paul talks about this, doesn't he? The word of the cross, you see, uh, is a stumbling block to the unregenerate, to those in whose hearts God has not worked his grace. Now what's interesting is not only does the Father choose to whom he's going to reveal this, but all of that, that very ideal, is good uh, in the eyes of the Father, verse 26, and also good in the eyes of the Son. In verse 25, because the, the Son gives thanks for this truth. The son doesn't say, well, there's that doctrine of predestination. Father, I know it's true. You know, uh, I'll I'll put the blame for that on you, Father. No, he says, thank you, Father, that this is how it's done. That you've chosen to reveal and you've chosen to conceal. And and you concealed it from those who were the wise and understanding. You, You revealed it to babes. Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. God is good uh, in all that he does. He's doing all his good pleasure in how he saves, how he judges, and how he reveals himself and how he hides himself. And it's his verdict alone, and he's the judge of the universe. It's his verdict alone that will account at the last day. And he's the one who says, Jesus, you know, is going to be the judge at the last day, according to Acts chapter 17. And uh, he says, this is good. Thank you, Father. This is a good thing. And then verse 27, continuing on this line, the Son is the one appointed by the Father to make the Father known to those chosen for salvation. So he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, the all things in the context is the saving knowledge of the gospel. It's the same all things as in verse 25. And they've been delivered to the Son by the Father. The Father's determination is that his only begotten Son is the ultimate key Holder into the kingdom of grace. You don't come into the kingdom of grace. You don't, you don't believe the gospel of Christ unless the Son reveals the Father to you. Uh, you know, what I, I use the expression key holder. You know, a key represents authority, doesn't it? You know, I, I have the key to my car in my pocket. If I handed it to one of you, uh, because you said, listen, your car needs to be moved. I hand it to one of you. I'm giving you some authority over my car. 
And the same thing with the key to the house. You know, you don't, you don't go around giving everybody a key to your house. But, I, you know, my children have a key to my house, and a, a few of my grandchildren do, my grown grandchildren. Uh, or if you work a job and they give you the key to the, the office building, you know, that's, there's some authority there. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has the keys of the kingdom. You don't, you don't come in to the kingdom unless he lets you in the door. He opens the door for you. He is the door, actually. No one knows the Son except the Father. That is, no one understands his absolutely unique divine human person. We believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. I suspect everybody in this room this Sunday evening probably does. But as I said before, we don't understand how it works. I used to word this to my congregation. I, 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 have no, I don't understand how the psychology of the person Jesus worked. And I didn't mean psychology in the formal technical use of that term, but just the idea of what, what was going on in the mind of that person who's truly God and truly man in one person. I, I don't understand how it worked. Obviously did work, I just don't know how it did. And no one really comprehensively knows even the Son. And yet the Son is the person of the Holy Trinity who is God coming to us in person. And, and, and we don't know him in the absolute sense, the Father alone does. And no one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son The Father hides or makes known according to his good pleasure. The Son chooses those that he will make the Father known to. And so this is, this is the doctrine of sovereign grace. I'm going to come back to that in my conclusion tonight and how we can make use of it in the proper way. Let me just say that with both these themes of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, where people have gone wrong, is to try to draw applications that have no biblical warrant. In other words, if you've read through our confession of faith and you get to the chapter on predestination and what's it say at the very end, be real careful with this. You know, Use it in the way you're supposed to use it. Because this is like a loaded gun and you've got to be responsible in how you use the thing. And actually, the same thing's true on the Arminian side with human responsibility. I think, I think they've gone in directions that don't fit what the, what the scriptures teach in regard to human responsibility. But let's move on um, to our moral responsibility to come to the living God. No one comes unless the Father and the Son um, reveal themselves to him. But we are to come. And we have the gracious invitation then. Verse, verse 28, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't those comforting words? as a child even, hearing my pastor read those words and finding great comfort, thinking that, my, that the Savior, who I'd been taught was truly God, you know, as, true, as well as truly man, as this one who's truly God says, come to me and I will give you rest. What, what, what wonderful uh, comfort we find in, in that gracious invitation. Whom is Christ calling here? Well, those who labor. Those who labor. You know what it is to labor spiritually? Uh, most of us here have probably labored, had maybe hard labor physically. Uh, maybe you've, uh, let me just think of one. I, I can think of um, working with some men at a church in uh, Colorado, and we were breaking up an old sidewalk to make a new one. But the old sidewalk was one of those old ones that were extra they made them really good to last, and, and the thing had been there probably 70, 80 years. And we were using sledgehammers. And uh, if you've never used a sledgehammer on 
hard cement, let me tell you, a few swings, and you, at least I started feeling kind of dizzy. It was kind of embarrassing because these big farmers were there, and of course they would they'd go like 10, 12 times and hand it to me, and I'd do it a few times, and they'd say, well, take over faster. And you know, they, they wanted me to do a few for my own self-respect, you know, but uh, uh, it was hard. It was really, really hard, but... You know, I've, I've had labor that was a thousand times worse than that. When I labored under guilt for my sin, and labored under the sense of condemnation of my sin, and under frustrating attempts at self-righteousness, self-improvement, I, I don't think there's anything more frustrating than that labor, because you keep trying and you can't get anywhere. You actually feel like you're going backwards. When uh, we lived in Colorado, uh, we went to the great sand dunes of Colorado. I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but it's, it's like five square miles in the Sahara Desert right in the middle of Colorado. And uh, the sign there says that the, whoever the kind of scientist that would work with that kind of thing don't quite understand why this phenomenon is there. These huge sand dunes, uh, some of them taller than this church building. And quite a bit taller. And so my daughter and Amanda and I, uh, she would have been nine or so, we were going to climb up one of the higher dunes. Everybody else in the family was going to wisely sit and watch us do it. And uh, you take one step forward, and it felt like you went back two. And you had to work so hard to try to make any progress. But that was nothing compared to when you're under a sense the guilt of your sin and your laboring to, to deal with that, that guilt and to, and to um, get out from underneath that guilt. And you're not, you're not yet trusting in Christ, the only one who can deliver you. And, uh, so he says those who labor, those with a load or who are heavy laden or a heavy burden, he says. The, the, the burden and load of guilt and condemnation and conviction of sin. Probably most of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, at least book one. And uh, I, had, I had kind of uh, slipped in my walk with the Lord. I, I, I think I really had become a Christian, probably in elementary school, I mean, as far as really trusting Christ. But I slipped during middle school and in, in high school uh, the first couple of years. I went through this time of great conviction and you know, I would try to reform my Christian life, and I just, it wasn't working. And, and then, um, listening to the preacher of my pastor, I finally received a fresh sense of pardon and, and God's uh, grace. And, and uh, so I'm sitting in this literature class. I think it was my senior year, junior year, perhaps. And the literature teacher was not a very nice guy. And so, I'll just say that. He actually read from the Bible one time, and did quite a perverted reading of it. But he was going through a list of the, the classics in Western culture, and he was recommending some of the books, and he got to Pippin's Progress, and he says, this is a boring book about a guy, you know, a guy named Christian, and it's symbolic, and the guy, uh, you know, comes to know his sins are forgiven. And uh, so the class ended, and I ran to the school library because his negative... Review, maybe you want to read that book. I was afraid someone else might get there first. It may not have been checked out for 10 years before I checked it out. I don't know. But I'm reading there, and I thought, this describes exactly the experience I just had a couple years ago. This, this is it exactly. That picture of this heavy burden. You picture like a big bag or something on his back, don't you? And the poor guy's bent down, and then he goes through the slough of despond and tries to climb the hill to, all this stuff that would be impossible if you didn't have that big burden on your back. And then there's that part where he comes and he looks at the cross and what happens? He looks at the cross and it just rolls right off his back and rolls away into a grave. It's gone. And uh, I remember that was, that may have been one of the, the first really kind of reformed background books that I had read. Really, a wonderful reading for me, but especially that picture of the burden 
Jesus Christ. Whom is he calling? Those who labor, those under a load. To what is Christ calling? To repentance. Uh, This is a command in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. To take his yoke upon us, to accept the moral responsibility which he does give us not to produce our own righteousness, but to trust only in his free gift of his righteousness to us, received by faith alone, imputed to us in Christ. To learn from him because of his meekness and humility. And uh, that's what he, when he says gentle and lowly in heart, heart, or meek and lowly in heart, the old King James, you know, his meekness, his humility. There is a meekness, and, and meekness is not weakness in the Bible. Uh, it's actually uh, the humility before God. And then it expresses itself in a humility toward each other because we've been humbled before God. And to think of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, being meek. But remember, in his human nature, we have human nature finally how we have not only sinless human nature, we have absolutely righteous human nature. And meekness or gentleness and lowliness of heart, those are fruit of the Spirit. Contrary to what the world thinks of as good qualities, you know, those are good qualities according to God. And And our Savior is meek and lowly in heart. Uh, The fact that that he is so compassionate to call us to come to himself, being as sinful as we are, uh, that that there's a a gentleness, a gentle but firm love. You see, it gives us us confidence if we hear him, if we really hear him. It gives us confidence. I don't care how sinful I am. This is, this is the, the Savior who uh, thinks of me and, uh, in one sense, thinks more of us than himself as far as the man Jesus. He dies for us. He, he doesn't, he's not advancing himself from an earthly point of view. He's come to rescue us. And not because we were good people. If we were good people, he tells us this, right? We wouldn't need rescuing. And, and so, who, he, who is he? Yes, we come and we learn a gentleness of meekness and being humbled before God in him, humbled before one another, learning how to serve one another in him. But here, I think we're especially thinking that, about him being not just the example of meekness, but he's the Savior, he's the approachable Savior. I mean, we've, we've all known proud, haughty people, and if you had to go ask them for a favor, oh, great, I have to go ask him, because he's a proud, haughty person. We, we probably have known kind, humble, servant kind of people, and you never have to, uh, you know, worry about going to ask them for help. They're eager to help. They want to help. They're, they're not, uh, they're thinking of others. And that and Jesus is the epitome of that. See? The Son of God who's also the Son of Man. And he, he, he's not, uh, well, let me back up here. Have you noticed, and some of you may have been Roman Catholics growing up, this can be a difference between practicing Catholicism and the true gospel. Uh, there were a number of converts from Catholicism during the course of my ministry at Merrimack, New Hampshire. And one of the things they would say was the approachability of God and of Christ and the true gospel. You know, why did they have to pray through Mary and pray through the saints? Well, Jesus is way up there. See, He's way up there. He's almost unapproachable. And I'm, I'm not, that's not just my language. I've heard them use that language before. I remember um, one of our uh, good friends, she got converted um, 
about my age, and uh, Teresa during the the uh, membership interview with the elders. She said, you know, a lot of the things Pastor Allen talked about in the new members class, I'd been taught the same things. God was a trinity, Jesus truly God, truly man. I'd been, I was taught those things. But God was way off. Jesus was way off. And uh, I couldn't just go to him myself. And she said, that was the difference in the preaching here. I knew now that Jesus wanted me to come to him. That, that he was calling me to come to him. He was open to me coming to him. And uh, so it's a call to repentance, to turn from ourselves as the answer and to turn to him as the only answer. Yes, repentance as far as sanctification, how it works out in sanctification, is me actually beginning with the help of the Spirit, trusting in my union with Christ and his death and resurrection to put off the bad stuff and put on the right thing. There, there is change in my life. But I think initial repentance is where I quit trying to make myself good. And I admit that God is right and that Jesus is the kind, compassionate Savior who alone can put me right with God. That's how I learned from him. Have you repented by turning to him? Probably all of you have. I hope you have. Uh, that you've learned, taken his yoke and learned from him in this sense. It's not only a call to repentance, it's a call to relief. Uh, He says in verse 28, and I will give you rest. In verse 29, you will find rest for your soul. And then, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest from our heavy labor. Rest from our heavy burden of our sin and our guilt. He brings rest by bringing us pardon, forgiveness of sins. And yes, he's starting to deliver us in our sanctification from the old life and to begin a work of a new life within us. There's rest there, rest for our souls. Why is Christ calling us to this rest? First, because of his heart. Uh, Because... Verse 29, he is meek and lowly. The eternal Son of God became the lowly Son of Man to redeem sinners. Jesus comes down. He's meek and lowly. He comes down. In the incarnation, uh, in this invitation, the way this ought to work from our human, mere human point of view, is he's so worthy and we're so unworthy we should initiate this thing, go down on our knees before the door of his kingdom and beg him for entrance. But that's not what's happening here. He's opening the door up and he, he's, he's telling us, come, 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 believe in me, trust in me, receive life from me. I'll, I'll give you rest. Come on in. You know, that's, that's his heart, the freeness, the, the, the generosity his heart toward us. And then secondly, his yoke in verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy. He says, take this yoke upon you. Learn from me. Come to me because I'm meek and lowly in heart. Come to me. Receive the life. Receive a true knowledge of the Father from me. Receive pardon of sins. And he grants repentance and faith to his elect. We do really choose to come to him because he's first chosen us. But we come, even our coming, is because of his redemptive work on our behalf. It, it really is a, an easy yoke. If Acts 5.31, he is the one that grants repentance. Ephesians 2.8-10, through 10, it's by grace and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. He's calling us to come and receive freely what he has already worked out for us. And it's light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because he relieves our burden, relieves us of our burden, and gives joy and assurance of heaven. There are are commands that are easy to obey. If you have ears to hear, they're easy to obey, you know. 
My mother uh, actually never had to give this command, but uh, and my wife's never had to give this command. That's why we're on diets. But Anne is a great baker, and she would make great pies. She never had to say to me, I can, you know, husband, I'm, I'm telling you, you need to eat this piece of pie. Never, not once in our entire 46-plus years of marriage did that happen. What, what I needed was not to eat as much of the pie, and that's what we've gone off of now is, is dessert. But, um, you know, some commands are easy. You know, as a kid, some, some things were easy, but other things were difficult. This, this is an easy one because what are we doing? It's, it's hard as you come. It's impossible apart from grace working in you. But when you come, it's pardon of sins. As you keep looking at him, there's an assurance that he has pardoned your sin. And there is that true joy and peace in the Holy Spirit that our confession reminds us of. It's taught in Scripture. And it's one of those things that you obey this command, and the more you obey it, the more joy you know, the more you want to obey it. And that's, I think, what he's saying. So uh, first tonight, then, as far as application, sovereign grace, do you see it? Do you believe it? Uh, Here are ways to apply it. First, God receives all the glory. God receives all the glory. And I think this is what we should be known for, and I think we are pretty much known for this, in true Bible-believing Reformed circles, and it's historic Reformed churches, that we want God to be glorified. Um, Like I mentioned, even in broader evangelical church growing up. They had, let us exalt his name together. It was God we were coming to glorify. Secondly, we received the strongest assurance in this way. I've had people that were reared in evangelical Arminianism tell me they couldn't come to a settled assurance that they were right with God. And yet they believed Jesus was truly God, truly man. They had asked Jesus to be their savior they were trusting in him. They couldn't come to a settled assurance until they began to appreciate divine sovereignty in regard to our salvation. They had, see, they had to come to the place where, you know, where Paul talks about, he that began a good work in you will complete it into the day of redemption. There was always that fear, not that Jesus would let, let me down, but my faith might let me down. And once they came to see that even my initial faith true faith, he had begun it, and he was continuing it, and he would maintain it. Yes, I'm to use the means of grace, human responsibility. You know, I, I read the Bible, I pray, I hear the word preached, I take communion, I come in you know, the public ordinances of the church. Those are tools he uses to sustain me in my faith and, and to give me faith. But a work he begins, he'll bring to completion. And so they told me, once I saw that, I had that assurance. I sought for it for, for so long. And then thirdly, I believe there's greater motivation to advancing in holiness of heart and life and greater confidence in spiritual power. Uh, I, you know, if... If I believe that I'm I'm justified through grace, but now it's up to me to work out my sanctification, and there are circles that take that approach, whether they use that language or not, then what you find is that you're you're trying to grow in your own strength and power. And that doesn't work any more than trying to get justified in your own righteousness. Whereas uh, there's a difference in how faith acts in justification, how faith in God's word acts in sanctification, but it's still faith in Jesus, even if it, if it responds in a somewhat different way in, in justification, there's kind of a passivity to faith. I quit trying to make myself right, and I trust in him to do that. And in sanctification, there, it's a very active thing. I make use of the means of grace he's commanded me to use. But I do so not trusting in the means of grace, not trusting my, my use of the means of grace. I trust in Jesus who's uh, not only my justifier, but my sanctifier. And one's gonna, he's going to glorify me in the end. And I'm convinced that I've seen more true holiness. Uh, 
I was, uh, I was in our Arminian circles when I was first in the ministry, and then fairly early on, as still a young man, I became Reformed. But I'm, I'm convinced I saw more holiness in the Reformed circles by far than I saw in the Arminian circles. I'm not saying that to brag or, you know, for us to get a big head or anything. But I think it's because of our emphasis on sovereign grace. If I believe he's at work in me and I believe he's all-powerful and his grace is all-sufficient, that motivates me. And, and I'm trusting him as I use the means of grace and I'm not trusting myself. And he receives the glory. As far as gracious invitation, then the question is, have I come? If I have come to Christ, I need to give God all the glory and keep his mercy always before my eyes. And if not, I need to ask the question, why would I wait? You know, those people saw Jesus do miracles, and they didn't believe. You know, from our viewpoint now, sitting here as Christians, we think, how foolish. And yet, uh, we need to make sure that we have trusted in Christ. And again, probably everybody here has, and unless some of the covenant children have not yet trusted in the Savior. I've already intimated that I was a covenant child. And there was a time I had not, I was not yet trusting in him and that I needed to, to do that. And so I, I, I always want to challenge the children in the church, growing up in the church. Make sure that you're not just approaching the gospel as your parents' religion. You know, my parents were Christians. It was their faith. But I, I was not going to get to heaven as sort of God's grandchild. You know, I had, I had to trust in Jesus myself. And uh, that's, that's part of our text here. Come to me. You come to me. And I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have chosen us and chosen to reveal your Son to us, and that your Son has chosen to make you known to us and has drawn us to yourself. And Lord, we give you all the glory, and we rejoice in the freeness of this salvation and that it is a guaranteed salvation, a guaranteed eternal life, because it's not for us to sustain it. That you who began this good work in us, you will complete it into the day of glory itself. So give us, renew our assurance tonight, renew us within us a sense of wanting to magnify and glorify you and to give you all credit for our redemption. And help us, Heavenly Father, to walk more zealously in the truth as it is in Jesus, because we believe that you are. Uh, the God of sovereign grace. And if there is anyone here tonight and they have not trusted in your son personally, would you bring them to put all their trust in him? We pray this for your glory through Jesus Christ. Amen.